Thanks for having me. Let's see what you got. It's been uh, almost two years since I was back in New York. It feels a little weird because I grew up here. This is home for me. It's home to you guys again. So I'm just glad to be back. Unfortunately, um, the circumstances are kind of a mixed bag as to why we're here right now. My wife um, has an aunt who's up in Mount Sinai in the city. And she's not been doing well physically. Um, in fact, um, the doctors think that this might be her last week here on the earth. And so Dina came into town to see her with my two daughters. And um, I joined up with them on Thanksgiving Day to go out here to Colorado to be with them and be with our families. And so that's why uh, we're here right now. Um, but it was kind of nice to just be back in New York and be with family during the holiday. And, um, this morning I was at my dad's church in Brooklyn. We got to see a lot of friends and friends and family there. And then to be here at Grace again, it's just it's just it's so nice to be back and see you all. Um, truth be told, I miss New York quite a bit. <laughs> but um, God has us where He has us, and I'm confident of that. And uh, just seeing God do some amazing things recently on the street. So yeah, I'd love to talk to you later after the service and catch up and see how you're doing as well. But thank you guys so much for your continued prayers and support of us. Um, I just, it sounds a little cliche, but honestly, we can't do it without that. You guys holding the road for us and really supporting us is immense. Um, um, sometimes we don't realize how powerful prayer is, how God works through prayer. But I can tell you, I'm quite definitely have seen God just come through for us in so many ways. And it's because of your prayers and prayers of others support us. So thank you. I am honored to have the privilege of preaching this morning or this afternoon. Um, I get to do this often, but when I do, I love to do this. And so when Pastor Tim asked me to do I said, absolutely. Um, we fall here on the Thanksgiving weekend where we've just forged our faces, hopefully, and had some good meals and times with family, but also taking some time back to reflect on all of the good things that God has done for us in our lives. And there's so many passages you can go to. You think about Thanksgiving, what God has done for us. Um, but one that I feel like the Lord highlighted is I was praying about what to share um, this afternoon was uh, Luke chapter 15, very familiar parable and story that Jesus shares. But I love this story because Jesus puts in the story for me what God has done for us in Jesus Christ coming to the earth and paying the price that we could never pay with his own blood. And it just paints for us a beautiful picture of God's love for us. And so that's what I want to emphasize here, is we thank God for so many things. Probably the most important thing of all is that we get to have a relationship with him because of the great love which he's loved us. And so I want to look at this parable together and just talk through a lot of the highlights and details of this parable. I love this parable. It's one of my favorite stories that Jesus tells. I guess you can have favorites, right? This would be mine. Um, then Jesus just masterfully depicts what God has done for us, His love for us. And one of the other reasons I love this story is because I love history. 
I graduated with a history degree, um, and so it's always been an interest of mine to study history. And this story is full of historical, cultural nuances that when we pick this up in our Bible to read Luke 15, sometimes it'll go right over our heads, 21st century Western readers. And so I want to highlight a lot of those things and what those details would have meant to this first century audience as Jesus told this story. So if you would come with me, we'll sit around the feet of Jesus, we'll listen to this story in the same way that these listeners would have heard it from a cultural context. So in this chapter of Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables, right? He first tells the parable of the lost sheep. Shepherd loses nine, uh, one sheep, he has a hundred, so there's 99 in the fold. He goes out to find the one that was lost. He brings that sheep back, and then the entire town celebrates with him that the sheep who was lost had been found. The second parable that he tells is the parable of the lost coin, right? You have a lady, she's in her home, and she loses this coin. She can't find it anywhere, so she cleans the house, every nook and cranny, sweeping, looking, picking things up. Finally, she finds that lost coin. She runs out the front door of her home and tells everybody, and they all rejoice with her and celebrate. She found her lost coin. And then the third one is the one we're going to look at. This is the parable of the two lost sons, often called the parable of the prodigal son. And the reason that Jesus tells these three parables is all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, right? Jesus, it's, it says in verses 1 and 2 that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And then in verse 2 it says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so then Jesus overhears that, and he knows what they're thinking. And then he goes into these three parables. And really what Jesus is doing is he's telling these dramatic stories in response to what the parable, to what the Pharisees had just said. And in this story particularly that we've been talking about, the two lost sons, the two sons, he provides a corrective to their view, how God receives sinners. And then he leaves them with an invitation as well that they too can be invited at the table with God, God the Father, that they're welcome to join. Um, and so this is why Jesus gives these three parables. This is the why behind these. Responding to the Pharisees who are looking down their noses at these sinners, these tax collectors, these people that, uh, for better term, lack of a term, would be considered the low life of society. And these Pharisees are experts in the law. And they look at the way these people live, and they see that they've broken all these laws, and so they consider them below them, to be even around them. And so Jesus is here ministering to these people, sitting with them, eating with them, talking with them, loving them. And the Pharisees just can't seem to understand how that's even possible. Jesus flips the narrative on his head, and he shows them just exactly how God loves sinners, and that in reality, he welcomes all to the table, that nobody's excluded, no matter what their background or what they do. What they do. And so that's where we pick up the verse 11 with this parable of the two lost sons. Um, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided his property between them. So in this culture, father would have divided his inheritance between the sons of the family, right? This was common in the Jewish Middle Eastern family where the father would have divided it between all the sons. And the larger portion of the inheritance, and oftentimes the inheritance was really land. This is what their wealth was built upon, was on their property. And that was their primary asset. The larger portion would go to the elder son, and the smaller portions to the other sons. And since our story has two sons, um, father would have likely given a third of his state to, to the younger son, and the other two thirds to his elder son. Um, but what's interesting is that this only happened when the father passed away. And here's this younger son telling his father, I want my inheritance, give me my share of the inheritance now. Which means his father is still alive when he's asking him this. And so, in essence, what the younger brother is asking of his father is he's saying, Father, I wish that you were dead. I wish you were dead and that I could just get what's coming to me. That's all I really want. He's telling the father, I care more about getting what's mine than I actually care about you and having a relationship with you. So the father divides a portion of the inheritance for the younger son, gives him his third of the estate. And interestingly, Keener, Craig Keener, a theologian, has a background commentary quite very helpful for these nuances and these cultural things that we don't often pick up on. But he said that the, the listeners, as they hear Jesus saying this, this is what happened, the father divided portion to the son, that the listeners would have viewed the father in the story as, and I quote, stupidly lax to pamper such an immoral son. <laughs> that the father would have been seen as really foolish and like one of those parents out there who just gives their kids whatever they want. Um, they don't ever punish them. Just let them do whatever they want. Give them you know, everything, even if it's bad for them. You know, the parents that give lollipops to their kids for breakfast. <laughs> In essence, that's what this dad is doing to his son. He's giving him the very thing that is going to destroy him. He's not loving his son, in a sense, it seems like. And then our story continues in verse 13. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So the son gets his land, whatever part of the estate that was, and he sells it immediately so that he can amass for himself finances for his own journey of pleasure. He has a plan. He's ready to go. And he's ready to blow all of his father's hard-earned money for his own selfish purposes. And he goes far away, it says. He goes into a distant land, far from his father and his home, and he spends all of his wealth on a wild, reckless, extravagant, or as King James English puts it, prodigal living. This is what the son does. He doesn't hold back. Everything that he's taken from his father He's immediately spending it all so that he can just have it with him. And as I, as I think about that, what the son does to his father, 
It often reminds me of actually what God does for us sometimes. Because the truth of the matter is that sometimes God gives us exactly what we need. He doesn't always just hold us back from our own sinful desires. In C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, um, it's an allegorical tale about a bus ride from hell to heaven. So C.S. Lewis writes this story about these people on a bus and they're traveling to heaven for hell. And he, he really puts this in a really succinct way that I think is really, really applies here to what this father is doing for his son. He says that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And that's really what has happened to this boy, this son. He's getting what he wants. But in the end, this isn't really going to be the best thing for him. And God is so gracious and merciful that in the end, he lets us have what we want. Even if that means the very destruction of our lives. So, the son thinks he's doing pretty well. Until we get to verse 14. And it says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So the circumstances of the story changed dramatically, and Jesus is no stranger to using drama to make a point. And there's going to be quite a bit of drama in this story. So, in an instant, this boy goes from wealth to poverty. The land goes from plentiful to barren. From food to nothing to family. And I think this is another picture of what sin has done in our own lives, in our own world, in our own see That literally brings a moment of pleasure, but then devastation afterwards. Promise of fruitfulness, but at the end, left one more. This is what sin does to our lives. It destroys us. It gives you a moment of satisfaction, but it doesn't actually satisfy the moment. I think that's what we're seeing in this boy's life. He had spent everything he had. He had a little bit of fun. And then in an instant, it's all gone. He has nothing left. And it gets even worse. Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. <laughs> so this story, like I said, is full of dramatic details. And these details probably would have been a little unbelievable to Jesus' audience as they hear this. But he's telling this to paint a picture of what we've done to God and what he has done for us. This is the picture. So here we see a Jewish boy, to remind us, this is a Jewish boy in a distant land who spent all that he had extravagantly. And now he's in the lowest position of his life, feeding animals. And not just any animal, right? He's feeding the kids. What do you think Jesus' listeners are thinking? Here it is. The disgust, right? Um, I've lived, I grew up in Brooklyn, so um, very exposed to the Jewish culture, and I know about the kosher laws and how pigs are viewed in their culture. And then I've also lived in parts of the world that are predominantly Muslim. It's very much the same. Where pigs are disdained, we don't talk about them. In some of these places, 
if you want to find an import tea, it's almost like joining a black market. <laughs> like you go to this little store and there's no sign on it, you can go pay for it. Like I paid the sign to eat. Um, it's just, it's taboo. It's disgusting that these things are looked down upon. These are like the, the lowest creation of God's eyes. And so here's this Jewish boy culturally. This is probably tearing him apart to do this, but he's so desperate. He has no other options. That he is literally to survive. He's in dire need He's in a desperate situation. And interestingly, in an ancient story like this that Jesus is telling to, to teach a moral, to teach a lesson, likely would have ended at this point in the story. It would have been over. Like Jesus, his audience is probably hearing all of this. Oh, the father, the son mistreated his father, went off and did this. And here he is in famine. Now he's feeding pigs. And the story. He learned his lesson, right? That's that's probably what we're thinking. Here Jesus telling us. The son gets what he deserved. But in Jesus' story, he's not finished. He has more to tell. And in fact, this isn't even the story. It's getting us. Then in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So, as if things couldn't get any worse, right? You got a Jewish boy working on a farm feeding pigs. He's that desperate. But not only is he that desperate to make money, he's so hungry that he begins to actually eat the food that he's feeding to the pigs. He's so desperate. Is it hit the lowest of the lowest things? And it's here that things will probably either end for him, or there's going to be a dramatic turn of events when things get better. That brings us to verse 17. Says, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. So the story is actually starting to take a turn in the right direction. He comes to his senses. Life has hit him hard, but it's caused him to recognize what is actually true. And what is actually true is that the father treated his hired servants very well. He was a good boss. Life has hit him hard. And he starts to think about his father's servants and how they're living. And he remembers they had food to spare. When the father served, served his dinner to his servants, they would walk away from the table with food left there. They didn't even, they had more than enough. Wonderful. He would be better off as a hired servant working for his father than his present circumstances. That's what he begins to think. So then he starts to scheme a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. Verse 18 and 19. I will set out and go back and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your So he prepares his plan, he prepares his speech, as any good child would do, right? If you just did something like what he did to his father, you better have a good speech in mind, ready to give it so that he lets you back into the house, right? And that's what he's doing, he's preparing his plan. And for him to have any chance, at returning to the home of his father, even as a servant, it's likely expected that he would have to 
publicly groveling shame to join his father. This was just part of the culture. It's not a one and done, I'm sorry, Dad. Now, there's going to be the expectation is culture is a huge public humiliation of the son. So I'm going to have to grovel and shame to his father, knowing that he would never have a, have a chance of being restored to the family, but just hoping that he would be able to just get a job working his father's son. And this is all part of the shame that he has earned himself because of what he did asking his father. It was a shameful thing. Then verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And this is where the story takes another unexpected turn. Because we're sitting here listening to Jesus. Father sees him, and instead of publicly shaming him and punishing him for the disrespect and the embarrassment of what he's put the father through, father is filled with compassion for his son. It's here that Jesus is teaching us about the very heart of God. That we are never so lost, we've never gone so far in our own sin. That he would never receive us back into his life. We are never so sinful, never so lost, that we're outside of his reach, that we're outside of his love. We'll always have love for his children. So, you see the father running toward his son. And also, this detail is really interesting. This would have been completely absurd. As these listeners hear, a father running towards his son. In this culture, a wealthy Middle Eastern man would have never run. Never. Servants could run, children could run, but a man like this, a man of honor, would have never run. But here we see him running. And this is another emphasis that Jesus is putting in dramatic detail that was a little shocking for the listeners to hear this. But it's to paint the picture that God is love. He loves this boy. He's willing to go down the road and chase after his son who's shamed him because he loves him. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Quite literally, he's come from heaven to the earth. He's come into our world. Our world of shame is into us because he loves us. So when the father finally gets to his son, instead of slapping him across the face, punishing him, making him pay his dues, the father instead embraces him and he kisses him. The sign of full acceptance and forgiveness. It's like, you're welcome back. You don't owe me anything. I just took all the shame on myself running down that road to you. This is what the father is saying as he hugs his son and embraces him and kisses him. And then verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So even after all he's just seen the father get run, chasing down, embracing, kissing, 
Son still goes on with his prepared speech. He's ready to go. He was committed to it, and here he is given. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So the father completely um, bypasses the groveling of his son. The son trying to give his speech just completely ignores what was just said by his son. And he does just the opposite. The son considers himself unworthy to be welcomed back into the home as a son. But the father doesn't see things this way. In fact, the son is placed back into the family with honor. Look at the things that happen. The father says, get my best, my best room. The son is given one of the rules of the father himself, the best robe of the So the father gets one of his own robes, places it on the son. Then he says, get him a ring. The ring would have been a family signal, and it symbolizes full restoration of sonship. You're not going to be a servant in my house. You're a son. Put the family ring on. Not only that, he tells them, get him sandals. Get him some sandals. Why is that so? Well, in this culture, slaves and servants wouldn't have it. But somebody like a son in the house of a wealthy man like this would have had sandals. And so the father says, you're not going to be treated like one of my servants. You're going to be treated like one of my sons. You're going to have sandals on. So in essence, what he's saying is, I won't accept you back as a servant. Powerful imagery as Jesus tells the story. And it doesn't end there. Remember, he's, he's giving the son honor, even when he deserves shame. The father throws a feast by killing the fattened calf. And when something like a fattened calf was killed, this would have been an invitation to the entire town. Because the father and his family would there's a lot of meat. So they would have invited the entire village to come and celebrate with us that the son of mine who was lost is not found. So the father, instead of publicly shaming his son, is now publicly celebrating him, saying, he's returned, he's back, come, rejoice with me. Just like in the other two parables before him. The shepherd rejoices with the entire town. The lady who finds her coin rejoices. This is what's happening there's celebration happening, thankfulness that the son has been returned, brought back. When the, when the end comes, I think about this, this feast and what this represents. There's going to be a celebration. We just had an awesome Thanksgiving meal on Thursday. There's going to be a celebration like no other. When the lamb who is worthy receives us back we're with him in the new Jerusalem, and the new heavens and the new earth. And there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. We get to all sit around that table and enjoy and rejoice that what he started has been finished. That he is worthy of all of our praise, all of our thanksgiving, all of our worship. That's a meal that we get to look forward to. Um, but I just, I know that as
as we take the word suffer, even while we're here as believers on earth, we get to in a measure rejoice and think about that day, right? Do this until I return. He commanded his disciples that we look forward to that day when everything is finished and we get to just sit with him at that table and rejoice with him. And this is a little picture of what that looks like. The, the fat calf is killed. There's a celebration going on. There's joy around the table because the lost have been found. And we get to verse 25. And um, things kind of take a negative turn. Um, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what was going on? Verse 27, your brother has come to find Your father has killed the fat calf because he has him back. So, so the older brother finally enters the story. We knew there was an older brother, but we hadn't heard from him yet. This is where you first hear from the older brother. And he finds out what is going on because he had been out working in the field. And it's interesting is that this, you don't really pick up on this, but as you read the story and hear Jesus tell this, um, that there's a reversal that Jesus is portraying here as he talks about the older brother. And that is this, that the prodigal or the sinners that the Pharisees are upset about, they're actually the ones who are on the inside. They're actually in a relationship with God and their lives are being changed. And it's the elder brother, the one who knows what to do, um, the one who outwardly looking seems to have it all together. We're actually on the outside. He's not the one inside of the party. Um, it's, it's the other problem. Then we get to verses 28 30 to 30. The older brother becomes angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered his property with prostitutes, comes home, who killed the fatten calf for him? Can you hear the disgust in his voice as he says these words to his father? The brother responds in anger. And this is one party that he refuses to attend. But the father humbly comes out and lovingly pleads with him. Come in, celebrate with us. Your brother has returned. The older brother answers his father, Look. And just that word alone, the way he says it, would have been a sign of pure disrespect to the father. No son would have ever talked to their father this way. It would have been shameful for Shocking moment for this man to hear Jesus say this. And the older brother has his own speech ready with a list of reasons why the father owes him. And he gives his father a lecture about who the father actually should be celebrating and why this feast is one's big mistake. And this reminds me of what so many other religions out there teach that you can earn favor with God. Um, just from some of my travels, I've seen other religions and the way that they live their daily life. 
and subjugation to these false gods that they serve. They have to burn their incense every day for each room that they enter. And all of their money and finances is spent on appeasing these gods and making them happy. And it's really no different from the way that this older brother is treating his father. It's like, look what I've done. I've done this, this, and that. And yet you're not showing me the honor that I think I deserve. What Jesus is saying is actually that's not how it works at all. It's about my love. And you're welcome to join. But you just come in. You don't earn it. That's what Jesus is teaching these Pharisees who've been looking down upon him and upon the people that he's reaching out to thinking they don't belong. They don't look like us. But what Jesus is saying is your idea of God is love for even these sinners that you're observing and sitting with is completely off. You thought you could earn your way to heaven. But really, it just comes back to my compassion, my love. Which is actually extravagant. Then we get to verses 31 and 32 as we close. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. So we had to celebrate with glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the father gives one final plea for the story he has interrupted. And he explains to the other older brother why they are celebrating that the one who had been lost is found. The one who is dead is alive again. Will the older brother join the celebration or not? This is the invitation given by the father to the others. And it's the same invitation being given to these Pharisees for the older brother in the story. They are the ones who have done their religious duties and therefore feel that God owes them. But really, the older brother is just as much a sinner as the younger. They're both in the same boat. At one point in their lives, they both could have said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. That's the reality. Both in desperate need of a relationship with him. Tim Keller points something out in his book, The Probable God, that once I read it, I could never read the story the same way. He points out that the elder brother in the story is flawed because in this culture, um, he actually should have gone after the younger brother and left him on his knees. You'll notice in the first two parables, somebody goes and finds the lost thing. But then when he gets to this third one, Nobody chases after the younger brother when he leaves. And what should have happened, and what these listeners would have been thinking as Jesus shares the story, they would have been thinking, wait, how come nobody's going after him? He's just going to let him leave? And the older brother is the one who would have borne that responsibility to go and find the younger brother. And it would have been at his own expense that this happened. He would have paid the expense to go into the distance bring the younger brother back. A U.S. soldier um, was lost in the Vietnam War um, back in the 60s. Um, and he became known, um, he actually had a brother who was living here in the U.S. You know, many of these soldiers went to MIA missing in action. He had a younger brother who lived here, and this brother heard that his brother had gone missing. And so he actually traveled all the way to Vietnam 
and began to search for his brother throughout the jungles of that country. And he became known on both sides as the brother, both sides of the war. Um, people assisted him, tried to help him find his brother. He became known as the brother, his older brother. And this is huge element that the story is missing. The original audience would caught on to that Jesus is continuing to make his point to the Pharisees. The elder brother is them. They should have been going after the sinners that Jesus was with. So what the story is actually missing is it's missing a good elder brother. And just like the shepherd in the first story, just like the lady who found her lost coin, um, this is what the elder brother should have done. What the story is really missing is Jesus. Jesus is true elder brother, filling missing pieces. And this story perfectly describes what he's done for us. He's gone into the distant land, from heaven to earth, to find us and return us to home, to the Father's house. He bears the cost himself by literally giving up his own life and his own blood to buy us back to the place. He is stripped naked of his robes to give us his own, to clothe us in his own robes. He takes the punishment on himself that we deserve. He takes upon himself the shame that we should have. And he's treated like an outcast, hung on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, for all to mock, so that we could be treated like sons and daughters, welcomed with open arms into the family. And this is where the story ends rather abruptly. It ends with a plea to the elder brothers in the audience who have been questioning how Jesus could eat the sinners. He gives them an invitation to come celebrate that these sinners have come. Turn down their own religious works, lean into the work. So, as we close here, there's a lot of things to be taken from the story, a lot of things to learn and apply to our lives. Um, first is who's more deserving of our thanksgiving, of our worship and praise, than our Lord who literally gave it all up to bring us into the family? Who's more worthy? Then the next takeaway would be, when is the last time that you felt the affection? You know, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are in the family of God. You're the younger brother. This is what he's done to you. Welcome you home. You are loved by an extravagant family. But when was the last time you felt that way? I would encourage you if you feel like or if you even question does he love me still? Go back to his word and study that even this week and reflect on it. And I, I've had a, had a few experiences where I read God's word and then just felt, not just thought, but felt the love of God. One of those I'll share briefly and testify is 
when I was um, a teenager, I began to question my own salvation and wonder, am I actually a Christian? I grew up in pastor's home, and I've made a lot of um, decisions to follow Jesus since my childhood. And so I began to question, because sometimes my life didn't line up for when I was reading scripture. So I, I wondered, does God really love me? And one morning, I really cried out to God. I said, God, am I your son? Am I your And that morning, I used a little devotional from back then. It was called Our Daily Bread. And the text for that morning was Hebrews chapter 10. And as I read the text, the focus text of that morning that the devotional was on was verse 17. In verse 17, it's talking about the new covenant. Verse 17 says, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds. I felt those words jump off the page. And I just felt like God was telling me, Jeremy, I love you. I am. And I will remember your sins and lawless deeds. This is how I view um, And I felt the love of God. I just felt so loved and so at peace knowing that this is how he sees it. And he used his word that morning. So I encourage you to spend some time with God this week. Do that. Allow his word to soak into your heart and mind. And allow the Holy Spirit to inspire that word to speak to you. To change your life. Encourage you with great love. Three more. How do you pursue the lost who are in need of Jesus? Um, you have the lostness of the younger brother in the story. Um, people who are searching for their own happiness and they're filling their lives with everything that people can satisfy without God. Um, and then we have the elder brothers, the religious people who think God owes them because of their sacrifices and the good works that they've done. But at the end of the day, both are selfish and wrong, desperately in relationship with God. So how do we pursue those people? Pursue them like Jesus. Love them. Give them invitations just like Jesus did to be alone. And then lastly, have you come home to God? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with the Father? Um, maybe you feel like you connected or related that younger or older brother of the story you've actually never heard to him. I'd encourage you to do that today. Talk to Pastor Tim, myself, anybody else in this room. We'd love to share with you how Jesus can change your life. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love for us, for what you've done for us by coming to this earth in pain, Christ on the cross, and the rising. Thank you so much for the gospel. Um, would we leave here encouraged knowing that you do love us, in fact? Would we experience that this week if we felt far from you? Would you just renew our minds and our hearts? And for those who do not know Jesus, would you work in their hearts? Holy Spirit, burn us in things for teachers are true. That you truly are the Son of God who's come to take us into the We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for all that you've done. You've given so many good things. But most importantly, Jesus' name.